1: I'm also found at Kate Campbell AUS on Insta.
0: And I'm Owen Rask AU on Insta.
1: Just beware of the fake accounts. We'll never DM you about trading strategies or crypto. And if it sounds a bit weird, it's probably not us. And just
0: one final heads up before we get into the show. This podcast contains general financial information only. Chris, welcome to this episode of the Australian Finance Podcast. Looking forward to it, Arlen. Good to chat. Good to chat, mate. Normally we chat on the Australian Property Podcast, which is the show that you co-host every week with Pete Wargent, the Honourable Pete Wargent uh, and Amy Linardi over there. Um, but we have received so many property questions that I think you and I are just going to have to do this every month for everyone over here on the Australian Finance Podcast. Mate, really quickly, you, people have probably heard you before. They've probably heard the Blusk name. Can you tell us a little bit about yourself?
2: So I um, run a mortgage-broking business called Blusk. It was Wealthful before we rebranded this year. Um, we've been going about nine, ten years, the business now. Um, but I was a financial advisor before that, so I started as an advisor back in 2007, um, and we sold our financial advisor business back in 2020. So we, mortgage brokers, we came from a financial advisor Background, um, and a lot of people in the business um, have. So, Ben, my business partner, came from a power planning advice background. And, um, yeah, it's a big team of us now. There's 16 of us, um, all hmm. doing sort of different roles within the business. Um, so we're we're brokers that really try to be trusted advisors for our clients and help them think through strategically. You know, what are they doing um, from a property point of view? And when you asked started the episode off a lot of property questions, it makes sense, right? You've got hmm. a lot of your audience probably in the more younger demographic. Um. I know you've got a huge following in lots of different uh, you know demographics, but you know, property is just the the biggest asset in Australia's portfolio. And it's, you know, it's such a big lumpy investment decision that you know everything kind of revolves around that. It's where it's sort of what I sort of figured out when I stopped working with older um, clients and started working with younger people is you know, I'm saving for my first home or I'm thinking about doing an upgrade, or I want to do a renovation, or you know, I've only mm. got limited cash, so I want to leverage it. And then property makes sense. And so yeah a lot of um and then there's the property obsession we've got in australia so mm. yeah i'm looking forward to doing these episodes each month
0: yeah we originally met years ago um i don't know how long ago it was a long time ago i think maybe it was even when you're still doing a bit of financial advice but um mm. chris for those that don't know chris is uh, my mortgage broker and i did really luck out with this because chris was recently voted the number one mortgage broker in australia by the advisor so um Awesome, mate. Awesome. I definitely lucked out. And I think we're all lucking out a bit today to get you on the show. And um, since then, for full disclosure, we've actually formed a partnership with Blusk um, because I've worked with Chris for my own journey. I figured everyone else might want to as well. So there's a link in the show notes uh, that will take you to a form that you can fill in and get sent direct to Chris and his team. Um, So you can can work with the team. And there's a few great questions that are come today along the lines of like, when should you get in touch with a mortgage broker? So maybe a lot of that will be borne out in in the, the questions. If you do send your question in, the best place to do it is there's a link in the podcast player. So if you're listening on Apple or Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts, just click the link that says, ask a question. Um, and then it'll take you to an online form and select the Australian finance podcast for this channel. As I said, Chris and Pete and Amy are also available on the Australian Property Podcast. Chris also has the Elephant in the Room Podcast. So plenty of uh, ways to get in contact, but a lot of these questions were sent in via social media, Chris. Um, just a quick note for disclaimer reasons. If we do talk about your, you know, the question that you've sent in, we don't know your full circumstances, so please make sure you reach out to an advisor or get in contact with your mortgage broker or tax accountant, as they are the ones who can take into account your personal circumstances. Um a free call or a catch up with Chris and his team um, is really easy to do and they'll give you kind of the nuts and bolts uh, advice straight out of the gate, which is great. So uh, the first question comes from Rob, and this is a really, really important one where I see so many first home buyers in particular go wrong, Chris. Um, Rob says, what is a good asset, in quotes, in relation to property? The most This is the most common clause you warn about. But I'd love to know how you determine what this is. Like what is a good asset, Chris?
2: Look, I could do thirty minutes on this and a, a full deep dive. I could probably do three hours on this or three days. Um, <laughs> and so to do this in three or four minutes is really hard, right? And I think to to start this off though, I think what you really need to think through is that not all properties equal. There's 11 million dwellings in Australia, right? 11 million different properties and they're all growing at different rates. Suburbs don't grow at the same rate. It's not like the, and you don't buy the Australian property market index like an ETF. You buy one property on one street, you buy one of those 11 million dwellings and maybe you buy two or three of them, but you don't really ever get true diversification. Um, And so what you just really understand is that all properties grow at different rates and um, they might grow at similar rates within a suburb, but even still properties on different sides of the street will grow at different mm. rates um, because one gets better aspect than the other, um, for example. So what you really want to do is think about uh, property from a, you know, 101 economics, you know, who really wants to own the property, not, not, not rent it. Rent doesn't drive its price, you know, you know, cause rent's just somebody's, you know, who wants to own the property, who's willing to take out a mortgage, who's will, willing to put their life savings in to own it. Right. Um, and, you know, what, what are they earning, you know? And, you know, are they on one income or two incomes? Are they on smaller incomes or higher incomes, et cetera? So you really want to delve into a property's qualities based on, you know, the incomes basically and the potentially people moving there in the future, what their incomes are as well. Um, and like, so who really wants to own it? What's the demand? Is it really strong demand or is it really weak demand? So if you think about a single person on one income and maybe it's a lower income, well, that property may not be a great asset because that person won't have much cash generally and they won't have much borrowing capacity. Mm. But if that property is desirable for a couple, that's great. So now you've got two incomes. If it's a higher income couple, that's really desirable because they've potentially got bigger borrowing capacity and bigger other assets. Um, the other thing is it could be desirable to a downsizer, you know, someone mm. selling out of a, a house. If they really want your your place, well, that's another big strong demand pool. So think about it from a demand point of view, not whether you like it, but who else would really want that, that property and what's their personal situation and their incomes and things like that. And you really want strong demand. Um, the second thing is though, that even if a property has got strong demand, is there a limit on supply? And so if you're buying a property, you need to think through, are they going to build more of what I'm going to buy? And um, And if so, then you've got to be really careful because Mm. in the future, someone may say, well, I like your property, but I could also buy something brand new that's exactly the same. And I'd have to buy something three years old for the same price. And so, you know, new house and land packages, new apartments, new townhouses, they may have good demand. However, they have a supply issue. So the dream property you want to get is really strong demand, growing demand, you know, um, as demographics and more population move to a location, they want they really want your type of property and there's also limited supply now if it ticks those two boxes then you can go level two and say right okay um you know is it got a good street you know that if it's on Mm. a better street than a poor street you're going to have stronger demand right if it's got busier roads is it got good light has it got good privacy has it got a good floor plan has it got um you know really nice streetscape is there parking so There's lots of other elements, but if you go to that fundamental, the demand and the supply, um, that rules out a lot of properties and then you start doing the deal breakers on top, which are those Mm. other sort of um, property-specific issues.
0: Um, Mm. Yeah, we talked a lot about, um, that was great, by the way, we talk a a lot about like property briefs and the must-haves and those types of things on the property podcast. But um, the way you put it there is very clear to people so you're looking for those scarce assets. I think you've called them before, but I mean those things that you might not be able to just get every, you know, in every suburb or every location. Um, you're looking for the, the the properties that you're going to sell to someone who has budget to buy it from you at a higher amount. Yeah. Um, and a lot of people, though, Chris, do say things like. Well, I can't afford that as my first home or something like that. And that's where this second question comes from. It comes from Samuel on Instagram Mm. who says, do I buy a small or cheap property now or wait and risk being priced out as prices go up? So, they're basically saying, well, I love that kind of idea that you talk about a lot. But what happens if I can't afford it right now? What can I do? So I guess, Samuel, um,
2: it's a good question, right? So we often see this, um, in particular people who are sometimes on the you know, the middle to higher incomes, right, and they've lived a good life and then they haven't saved um, <laughs> because they've been spending everything they earn and finally they go, let's start doing something for our future. You know, I've been working for 10 years, I've got nothing in the bank. What have I got left to show for it? And so they save $50,000, let us just call it, and they go, right, let's just get something, right? Mm. So the question is, Samuel, is, you know, how long is the gap between now and then potentially when you can afford it, you know, and what's stopping you? Is it means that you've just got to get a wage increase? Is it means you've got to get your savings up? Or is it really just not possible anyway because those things aren't going to change much? Your salary is almost capped. Your savings are growing slowly. Then you might just say, well, based on my budget, that's all I've really got. It's unlikely to increase dramatically because my income's not going up and my savings is not going to allow me to potentially mm-hmm. borrow more. Um. So, maybe it's just getting the best asset I can today. Uh, however, what I, we do often see is people who potentially, if they just got that next promotion or they just increased their savings another you know, you know, 30,000, then that created a lot more options. And so, buying something today, what they can afford today versus what they could afford in six or 12 months down the line, they would have been better off to wait. Um, and, uh, and that's a temptation when sometimes people are just want to get into the market because there's a bit of FOMO and prices are going up and the medias and they they rush that decision. They get something and then six to 12 months time, their situation, they're still saved. Then they go and buy another cheaper property. And all of a sudden they're, they're accruing all these, what we call subpar assets because they've just bought what they could afford at a certain point in time. That's why I'm really, I find it hard when mm-hmm. you constantly see it over the, the social channels, you know, when's the best place to buy a property 20 years ago? When's the next best <laughs> price to do it today? Well, it's very simplistic. That's not always true. You know, potentially it's better to buy it in six months' time when you've got yeah. more savings or more capacity. Um, and a lot of investments brokers do this as well is, you know, like you're, you're missing out if you're not in the market today. So, yeah, mm. it, obviously, and that's when, when, you know, Owen did the disclaimer there. There's two reasons. One, there's a... Uh, legal reason he did that but secondly it's really true you know someone's situations everyone's on you know got different backgrounds they've got different plans for the future different assets different savings different family and and everyone's doing different things especially in the property market and so you know having one way and so potentially we're always constantly figuring and tweaking and go for you it's potentially to do this because this is what you're telling me and it's not like a one-size-fits-all approach that maybe sometimes other products can be like super insurance and and things like that can be a little bit more, you know, you can follow a philosophy and just go get the product. But I feel like with property, especially, oh, it's, yeah, it's everyone's doing different things, um, especially.
0: And because people can, I don't want to scare anyone that hasn't bought a property yet, but people can blow themselves up on this stuff because they don't really factor in like the long-term implications of what they're doing. So I see a lot of people, Chris, I know you work like a lot with like young families, first home buyers, but also upgraders and the like. Um, I see a lot of people make really bad sacrifices on this really important asset in their life. And it can either be a springboard or it can be an anchor for some people. So getting the right advice is so important. And that actually brings me to some other questions, which we might jump down to and then come back to the other one in just a second. Um, so this is from newbie buyer. That's what they call themselves. I have talked to a mortgage broker for my first property purchase. The broker said I can borrow that the amount that I want to borrow. So I should talk to him once again. Uh, once I find a property I like, and I do not need pre-approval. Is this normal? Chris, I might just add a thing in here to say a lot of my experience with mortgage brokers has been cookie cutter, which is why we obviously work together because it's not, not cookie cutter. Um, but is it normal? Does this situation sound normal, like come back in the future kind of thing?
2: It can be. And um, depending on the how many questions that person's asked you and um, depending on how truthfully you've answered those questions and hmm. how well they know policy, um, unless, you know, so we, we don't take that approach. We don't take a mud on the wall approach. Like let's just, someone calls me up and says, oh, this is not my income and I just roughly rolled off what they can borrow it's so much more that goes into a mortgage application that I need to know. I need to know your credit file. I need to know other assets. I need to know your job and, you know, how your pay is structured. And a lot of people get it wrong. You know, they think they're getting more than they're earning or, you know, they, they didn't know they've got some issue with their credit file. We've got one at the moment, just didn't know there was a massive issue on their credit file. And so um, I would always say, you know, if the broker has gone through and got all your documents and it's giving you a proper strategy, um, and they really know what they're doing, like we've got 100% approval. right? I can't remember the last time we, we had a declined loan. The reason is we go through your situation mm. with a fine tooth comb and know exactly what's a bank. And if, they, if we're worried about a bank approving it, we actually speak to the bank first and go, will you give us an exception for this situation because of X, Y, Z. And so if a broker's done that, that to me in our situation, we know that's as good as a pre-approval because we know it's going to get approved. However, for peace of mind, we'd also recommend you just go get that pre-approval. Because sometimes, um, and it's happening a bit at the moment, you know, um, when rates went up, your borrowing capacity falls a little bit. So, with a pre-approval, it locks in that borrowing capacity for three months. Um, So, there's small things like that. Um, uh, Yeah. So, I would just, you know, when you're buying, sometimes you need to move fast. And so, you know, just having that real peace of mind that I've got one bank willing to lend me this amount. um, They may or may not be the absolute optimal, but they're a good option. when you purchase if it's a short settlement you may not have the luxury like i'm talking of three or four week settlement which sometimes Mm -hmm. happens um you may not have the luxury to shop the market but because you've got a pre-approval you know you can settle um and so you know that there's a few reasons why you'd still want to be pre-approved um you don't legally you don't have to right but it just makes common sense there's no cost If you just do one of them every few months, it's not going to affect your credit rating, especially if it's approved. Um, Mm. And so it's just, yeah, good, good.
0: Does that also, in your mind, Chris, because when people make offers in a a hot market or there's a good asset like you were talking about before, like in a suburb, in a house, in the street, sorry, um, there's a house that people really want to live in and there are multiple offers. Does it, in your mind, does it give the buyer some confidence and also the person that's selling the house because you can say you've got pre-approval
2: yeah absolutely so a lot of um agents you know if they don't think you're pre-approved they're not going to think you're serious um it's not you'd have to tell them that anyway you could actually say i'm pre-approved and you're not etc but ultimately that's one of the things you'd probably be saying that we're fully pre-approved we've made offers on places before we're ready to go you just sometimes people try to play it too cool with agents right and you know i'm not going to tell you anything well hang on a sec how do they know to put you on the hit list the hot list that's what you're going to find out about properties and so absolutely i think with offers um you know to get great assets you know you can either offer more money than everyone else or you offer better terms, right, And mm. um, or a bit of both. You offer, you know, a real close amount of money to what everyone else is willing to pay, but you offer the best terms. And terms could be the settlement period. It could be unconditional offer, which is a big one. Um, and so if you're pre-approved, you've got a good broker, you have the confidence. And that, generally speaking, great assets sell under unconditional offers because someone's using that as a negotiation tool. They're saying, I know there's competition on there. I know there's four people wanting it then they all basically have to offer unconditional offers and that's, then it comes down to price and usually the the time frame on the, the settlement. So, yeah, and, you know, mm. you, you're as a buyer, having a confidence to make an unconditional offer, you, you really want to have a pre-approval just to know that you've got that certainty that nothing's going to go wrong. Um, For sure. And it doesn't, there's no cost and there's no, doesn't, yeah, so yeah, definitely get yourself pre-approved.
0: Yeah, and this is where a good broker can educate you as well as a solicitor or your conveyancer can educate you on how to make a confident bid and knowing that you protect yourself as well. Um, whereas if you just call up your mortgage broker and they say, Yep, no worries, you're not you don't really get the confidence that you you're dealing with a professional. So um I'll regard- just have one final point because it is a big one. So with pre-approvals, there's two types. There's humanly
2: assessed, where a bank basically oh, yeah. goes through and ticks off all the things. They've checked it all, right? They've checked your paces. The proper there's, um, assessment a commu- computer assessment, which a lot of banks are moving towards, right? Because it's very low cost for them versus someone sitting at a desk going through pay slips, expensive. A lot of pre-approvals don't go ahead. So banks are like, well, let's just give someone a computer assessed pre-approval, but it's not humanly assessed. You've got to be careful there because if that data is not put in correctly or they've missed something and that affects that, that pre-approval is invalid. And a lot of online lenders, for example, potentially use these as well. So just be really mm-hmm. careful. What you want is a humanly assessed pre-approval And that means the conditions on them are really just subject to evaluation usually. Um, And then you know they're just going to get your latest payslips when you purchase to make sure you're still working. But they're not going to ask for all your documents and do all this check on your file because they've already done all that. They're just going to check you're still working, check you're buying your good property, do evaluation on it, which 99.9% of the time is fine, um, and then you're going to get formal approval.
0: Sweet. Okay, so I've got a question here from Marty, which is a bit different. Um, So might just skip through a little bit of it, but uh, Marty says, currently saving for a deposit and have a meeting with the mortgage broker booked for January. So I think that's upcoming January. And um, They invest a bit of their money uh, into an ETF and they save the majority. So they're doing a bit of both, which is what we advocate for, Chris, because if people feel like they're not getting ahead because they are saving, well, at least they can learn the craft of investing and get for that sure. regimented savings down. And um, the question is basically, should I stop investing and just save all the money? Um, for the home or should I keep investing? Um, what would be more appealing to a bank? Look,
2: we'd love to say that the banks look at things, you know, case by case and, you know, <laughs> put their own personal opinion on things and say, look, Marty looks like a better customer because he did X, Y, Z. They they look at things a bit more black and white. You know, whether you've got your money in cash or shares, the bank probably doesn't really care. They just mm-hmm. want to care that you've got enough money to mm-hmm. settle the property. Um, it's just similar like a credit file, like taking out a credit card, paying it off on time. like you really have got good credit in the bank size or bad credit, right? So it's more a case of just not doing any mistakes with credit uh, and a bank will lend to you. So probably doesn't matter too much, Marty. And I think it's just, all I would say there is, you know, equity is a little bit more volatile over short periods. And so as you get closer and closer to to your property decision, you know, you've just got to be aware that when you're buying into shares that you potentially open yourself up to short-term volatility a bit more. And the, the additional potential return on that um, might uh, outweigh the risk of a potential, you know, market correction in a short time frame, But I absolutely agree. I think when you're especially starting out with investing, um, you know, what's all about building great habits, right? And, For sure. And, and understanding and getting comfortable with volatility. And so when you are buying, even if, you know, it says there are only a third of their savings going into that, I think it's great because you're getting, you've seen markets go up, you've seen markets, you know, go down, and you're getting comfortable with volatility. It's one of the biggest things you need to when you're um, you're investing. Yeah,
0: you're, for sure, it is. And um, Marty, this is the thing: if you've got a good mortgage broker working for you, which it seems like you might in this instance, or they're prepared to, you can call them now and ask this question because they would probably. I, I could be wrong, Chris. Tell me if I'm wrong here. They might ask, "Well, how much do you have in savings already?" Um, and when do you plan to buy because i feel like if you've they might be able to give you some insight into well how far do you have to go to save to con- do you need to continue saving or should you be investing you, you know does that make sense absolutely there's lots of uh misunderstanding of what you need for a
2: deposit sometimes people think they need um less than they actually do um and sometimes people think they need a lot more and so mm. um yeah, and government schemes are always changing. You know, they flipped with stamp duty in the last few months. They had the 5% deposit home loans, you know, they all changed in July as well and and things like that. So absolutely, uh, mm. you know, what they t- said to you six months ago might be actually not true anymore. There might actually be some more options there. So, mm. um, yeah, stay, stay close, especially if you're close to your goal because sometimes saving for an extra six months may mean, you know, a good, like, whole different um, period. The property market basically moves in two cycles, right? You've got your your autumn sort of pre-winter period and your spring period. And a lot can change in those periods. Markets can move quite fast. And so okay. six months can be quite costly to wait if you didn't need to because you thought you had to because you had to save some money. Then you go, actually, no, we could have bought six months ago, which would have saved us 3 or 4% in mm. our purchase. Um, and, yeah.
0: So, okay. So I know a lot of people that come through us and work with Blusk, um, they they don't they're not maybe ready to borrow right now or maybe their borrowing capacity isn't there right now but this is just a question from me generally in your mind if you're dealing with a first home buyer or even an upgrade like someone who already has a home or an investor whatever when should they get in contact with you
2: um look we, we we've got resources to to talk to that person now right and give them the clarity on the savings goal okay. and- you know, how much they need for a deposit and any issues that they and sometimes it's just asking a few questions that you know you just want to be clear on things, and then that, that could be a seven minute conversation or it could be a 20 minute chat. Um, you know, we'll be able to explain it. It's no point going through a pre approval now because you're not actually going to get pre approved. Yeah. Um, however, if your savings was XYZ, then potentially you could do it, or you they might say, Oh is there any other options we say well is there a guarantor a good option for you you know and yeah. you might have thought well i haven't thought about that before and then maybe you start research that and then you speak to your parents and yep. etc so i don't think it's too sometimes also people are, are considering like that first question i can't remember what was wrong but you know do i samuel wrong. i think do i just buy something now because i've got some oh, yes, savings sir. you know i think that's also a good time to you know, a good broker, I think, would, you know, educate you and say, actually, your buying capacity is really strong. You're on great incomes, but you just haven't got much savings. So do you really want to waste some of that buying capacity on that property? Um mm. yeah, good so point. yeah, it's, it's probably never too early. Um, because it just if it just gives you enough clarity to give you a savings goal and a, an idea of what you need to do today. Uh, and then just keep track of, you know, anything that comes out from, and if you're listening to podcasts, you are going to be more across these things. Um, Absolutely. Uh, you know, I changes in the government schemes because, yeah, they feel like they're changing every six to 12 months like governments.
0: <laughs> that, yeah, that's why if you have, um, like you can either research this or yourself, a lot of the ATO website has some information on different schemes but also um, industry websites or just speak to a broker that operates in your state. Um, Chris obviously works across the country but, Um, speak to a broker that operates uh, across your state. Um, There was one, I've got basically two questions to go, Chris. One was from Kat, and this was one that applies to anyone. Um, But Kat says, I'm a first home buyer. My broker is asking if I prefer fixed or variable interest rate. Given the rising interest rates and or possible decline in a few years' time, what are the pros and cons of this type of loan?
2: (laughs) yeah, so big question the broker asking questions to you is hard, right? there um, it's, it's something that you know, it's definitely brokers do it, right? Like we we want to give you the what you want. But part of a great broker is actually being more of a trusted advisor, right? Not a validator, yeah. a facilitator. It's more someone saying, look, this is what we think you should potentially do. Educating on the pros and cons, but ultimately having a bit of a preference to educate you that the benefits and the risks. And so, um, mm-hmm. look, so this, that would, and that's what just generally when you, you know, how do you want to structure the loan? Like interest only, you know, print offs, uh, or versus principal interest. They might ask you that question, but it's also then educating you on the pros and cons and, you know, and should I pay LMI or not? So, because they lean, you, they're coming from a place of knowledge, right? They're seeing this, mm-hmm. they know. And so, I would say a good broker would guide you on this question and, and would basically um, explain to you where current fixed rates are, how they compare to the current variable rate. Generally speaking, you will win on going variable over fixed, but there's times when fixed makes a lot of sense. Um, so if, for example, there's uh, you couldn't sustain any interest rate rises because you, you were so tight and you needed to really protect yourself and you really wanted that clarity, but I'd also argue in this situation you've got to be a bit careful because if rates are at the top of the cycle and rate cuts come and rate cuts are much faster than you expect, you know, are you going to wish you went on variable? So And you don't have to go all variable or fixed. Yeah. So you can sort of mix it and go, you know, and you should never fix all your loans, to be honest, because generally you can't offset fixed loans. You know, there's some banks you can, but generally you can't. So, yeah, don't go, you know, if you are going to fix, maybe don't fix it all. Fix a portion but even right now it's hard to argue fixing um you know uh sometimes we fix for one or two years if it's a really good rate um but very very little whereas in 2020 2021 we were fixing 80 90 percent of our clients and 80 90 percent of their loans um yeah. because you know you're getting fixed rates in the twos versus uh and if
0: rates went up they'd be super winning so yeah um i remember yeah. you you told me to or asked to fix a portion of our loan but keep the uh a portion of it variable so we could use those offset accounts which we've been using um and i for some reason before i bought a property even as a finance person myself because i always just thought that it had to be fixed or variable i didn't know you could do a combination of the two but yeah it makes so much sense to do that um okay so the last two questions i'm going to kind of try and bundle them into one uh chris because they're kind of the they're along a similar line. So Danielle asked a question on Instagram, and Ivy Gray asked a question as well. Danielle's question was, "How do I navigate a, a, a subject to sale purchase? So they're buying a property where it's subject to a, another sale, looking to upgrade my house, but will need to sell my house to do it. Um, uh, right. So they're selling their house. Okay. Need to. Yep. Okay. And then the second one from Ivy Gray was, "Buying first versus selling first when upgrading your home in the middle of a rental crisis." What are the finance options, pros, cons, and risks of the different ways to do it? So these are more for people that have homes and yeah. they're looking to purchase another home, but they need to sell, obviously.
2: Yep. So we do lots of work with uh, people in this situation, right? Maybe they've got an apartment and they want to upgrade to a house, or you know, maybe they're in uh, one house and they want to upgrade to a bigger house. Um, you know, mm. and so there's you know, off, it's, it's a really tricky one, and you could really get it wrong, unfortunately. And because what you're doing is you're doing two transactions here, you're selling. Yeah and you're buying, and if you sell really well, that hasn't solved your problem. You still need to buy really well. And so one of the temptation things, people like certainty, right? And so they think the first, they think this logically and they say, well, I'm gonna sell first. Uh, and I'm only gonna sell for a certain price. Um, and if I don't get that price, I'm not gonna sell. But what they're, they're focusing too much on their current property um, and its sale price, they're not thinking through, well, obviously they're gonna to have to sell it anyway, because they do need to do an upgrade. Um, and so rather than uh, potentially too much focus on trying to get a certain price to sell, but that may, you know, if they keep focusing on that, then they're not focusing on their next attraction is buying, which could be running on them. That price of that property could be going up. So this is probably the more important one to focus on. Um, one of the dangers of selling first is if you sell, you got the money in the bank, you're super happy, uh, then you got to potentially rent something. You could yeah. sell on a longer settlement. And so maybe like 90 or 120 days and try to buy. But if you, no matter if you try to sell on a long settlement or you sell on a short when you have to rent, it's really stressful then because, you, like you say, rental crisis or not rental crisis. You've got to be in the rental market. And so you've got to sign a lease. You've got to do all your move, your furniture. Naturally, when people are out of the market, they get a bit edgy. And they get a bit nervous, like especially if prices start to move and they can move really fast. And so what we see in this situation when someone sells first is their their brain and emotions start to take over. Uh, this happens to me. It happens even people who know what they're doing, who the, like buy property every day. It's so emotional when you've got partners and kids and, you know, even work and, and, and the market's moving on you. You're not thinking rationally. And so because you're out of the market and you're renting and maybe your lease is running out or maybe you really want to buy pre-Christmas, um, what ends up happening is you're just looking at whatever's on the market right now. And great assets don't come on all the time. And what ends up happening is people get burnout and they get like buyer fatigue mm. and then they get a bit stressed because they're in their rental accommodation and then the market starts moving and then they rush the purchase um, because they've, they're renting and they just want to get back in the market. And so what we see is the big risk of selling first is A, you could sell at the price in January when you sell, um, but then you might take six months to buy and the market, could move a bit in that six months. And you're out of the market, so you don't. All you got your money is return on cash. Um, and secondly, you rush the purchase, so you just basically go from one frying pan to the other. Yeah. So the reason why someone would do that first is if they've got an asset that's not a great asset at the moment, because that could take a long time to sell, or it's really variable what they're going to sell it for. And so sometimes it's best just to get rid of it to know exactly what. You, but often when it's not, if it's a you know a medium to quality asset. I'd really encourage someone to consider, can they look to buy before selling? Um, And, you know, and really understand the risk. So what you would do is you would try to, you know, really get good clarity on what you can sell for, you know, speak to multiple agents, get your property ready for sale. It's like, you know, you paint it, you tidy things up uh, because you do need to sell it fast. The more presentable it is, the easier it is to sell. Get real good clarity on what you're going to sell it for. Let's just call it $500,000. And get pre-approved on what you could purchase if you sell. So some banks will do this for you, um, assuming you've sold. And you're out there looking to, to the next place. Um, and uh, you be really patient. And you wait for that really good asset. And then when you finally find it, it, could take you many months, but you're not out of the market. You've got somewhere to live. You make you try to buy it on a, on a three or a four-month settlement. And if you catch that property very early in the campaign, it only just listed or it's going to come on the market in the next week, an agent told you about it. A lot of sellers will be open to that, you know, because they were already thinking it's going to take three months to sell this yeah. anyway. And so in this situation, you buy on a three, four-month settlement, but when, you, when you're when you going to sign the contract, you speak to the agent on your current property who you most likely will sell through and say, what's actually sold this week is similar to mine? Or you try to go to an auction on a similar property to yours That's and you should always do that. Um, and, you know, so you buy on a longer settlement and then as soon as you purchase, your property goes on the market. Yep. Um, you you know, you you've picked your stylist, you know exactly who agent you're gonna do. They do the photos and they list it. And then you've got four months to sort of not just sell it, but also get it settled. Um and so I would really encourage a lot of people to consider that. Look, what you need to do in that situation is make sure even if you get a bad day price on on the sale, you can still settle on the new property. See, it's not everyone can do yeah. this. Um, but it really saves what we see the outcome is when you sell first often is you end up jumping too fast into the wrong property because your basically emotions take over and you just want to get something because the market's moving on you and you get freaked out.
0: Um, it sounds so. like so much of that, Chris. It sounds like so much of that depends and it's going to sound so simple for me to put it this way, but it depends on the quality of your, the house you have now and the yep. quality of the house you're buying. It seems yep. like so much of it depends on those two things because that impacts the time. But the other thing that you said, what you do have in your control... Is being ready, like being prepared for what comes next. Um, yeah, so we've got a client
2: literally doing it at the moment. Um, yeah, multiple client chats with her this week. I love working with her, and uh, they've got an apartment in the east, and they're trying to buy us a house in the in the eastern suburbs of Sydney, and. Um, you know, there's she thinks she might sell the, and the big numbers for some people. But, they, you know, I saw her apartment at 1.5 to 1.8. It's quite a big range. Um, wow. And, um, but they know what they've got this other place, They know what they can purchase it for. And they think that's a really good deal. And it is, to be honest, it needs a good reno. And they're not as hot as other properties right now. So, you know, if she, she can lock in a really good buy price, she's taking a gamble on what she's going to sell this apartment for. But if she can still afford it, even if it doesn't get the greatest price and it sells for 1.5, well, she still won on the next property, which is a great asset. Um, and what we've seen in this situation, a lot of people, they don't, they still win on the, the sale. It still gets 1.7. It gets 1.8. And, yeah, they could have and they didn't have to sell first and be out of the market. And um, they can often win on both transactions by buying really well, um, presenting their property really well, hitting the market, getting the right agent, styling it, um, and then doing a really good campaign, Um mm. They get a great sale price, which they're always going to do anyway. But um, yeah, they hadn't mm. didn't have that certainty when they purchased, so it's a bit bit of a leap of faith. But if you do all those steps up up front, um, you can give yourself the best chance of pulling it off. Where you bought well and you've sold well, um, mm. and that transaction hasn't really killed you. But if it goes wrong, if you you buy the wrong property or you you know you overpay on the purchase because you're desperate, or you don't get the right sale price, or you don't buy upgrade at all because you're just so nervous then there's an opportunity cost
0: that's really going to kill you. Yeah, for sure. Um, clearly that, that's a, uh, a higher stakes game for a lot of folks. So it is. Um, really be careful, really have your strategy thought out and speak to multiple professionals that you need to speak to. Um, and I think Chris's advice there was quite um, salient as well, which is that if you do get an assessment from agents, real estate agents, just remember it, real estate agents, who they work for and what their incentives are. Um, get multiple opinions on the value of your existing home um, before you go into this. Um, So just to recap, we've had some great questions come through from uh, from Rob who asked about like, what is a good quality asset? That's a really um, important thing to remember for long-term wealth creation because so many people will create wealth from their property, not just like their share investments and all those types of things. Um, Waiting to buy a better property or buying cheap now, speak speak to your broker locked in, or variable rates. Chris gave some good advice on that. It doesn't have to be all or nothing. Um, and all in all, when you're doing an upgrade or you're doing something like this, you're transitioning properties, be mindful, prepare yourself, and also try to control your emotions as best you can. You probably won't be able to do it completely. Uh, Chris, we've obviously got um, a way for people to get in contact with you. There's a link in the show notes that goes to uh, a form that people can fill in and book straight into your team's calendars. Um, just to just to cover off, you you pr- primarily deal with clients from Melbourne, Sydney, Brisbane, along the east coast, but do you have clients I- anywhere else as well?
2: Oh, absolutely, and um, yeah, you know, it's well into the hundreds, maybe up to two hundred now. People have come through the, you know, this this partnership, so and they're all over, uh, all different parts of um, mm. you know, their life and um, backgrounds and locations, and um, oh, the good thing about mortgage broking for us, to be honest, is we can help people all over the place. Rather than a real estate agent or a buyer's agent, is mm. really focused on. And even, um, you know, conveyances and it's very hard for them to work in different states. But mortgage brokers, um, the bank mm. and the lending side, um, we can work with clients anywhere in Australia or where they're buying could be anywhere in Australia. So, um, mm. yeah. And to be honest, what you really want is a real trusted advisor. Yes, you could go and walk into an office and see a broker, but, you know, it's all basically digital now anyway, you know, the the whole yeah. uh, application process. And so, you know, and you can do video calls and you can, and you can still speak to people. So... Yeah, that, that local broker, if they're you know, potentially going for local knowledge with that broker of the local market, could be a bit careful with that as well because they've got to have their own personal opinions on that, but they're not buyers' agents. And so, you know, generally speaking, you yeah. want to be getting a lot of that local knowledge off those buyers' agents anyway, to be honest. So we, we've gone and built partnerships with over 40 or 50 different buyers' agents across the country. So, you know, that gives us local knowledge across all those markets because we can work with those local buyers' agents. Um, yeah, great. And so, yeah, that's yeah, great.
0: Well, um, we're going to be back on next month because we, uh, we do the Q&As for investing and we do the Q&As with financial planners, but we haven't done property Q&A yet. And I think just based on the sheer number of responses we got from a few sh- short social posts, we're going to be back again next month. So Chris from Blast is going to be back next month. So send your questions in. There is a link in the show notes. And if you just absolutely love property and you want to learn more, uh, just like Chris and I, Uh, jump over to the Australian Property Podcast. We've done a few cross-posts in time, um, but the Australian Property Podcast now has over 23,000 listeners, which is just amazing considering it was only started a couple of months ago. Uh, Chris here, Pete Warden, Amy Lenardi, and I occasionally do a cameo on there and I love it. So get across there, have a look. Uh, Chris, mate, always a pleasure. So thanks for joining me. Thanks so much, Owen.